stick. That said, that the number one book of the Bible that congregation members and churches want their preachers to preach on is the book of Revelation. And the number one book of the Bible that preachers don't want to preach on is the book of Revelation. You might have put me in that category, but as I began preparing for this, I'm really excited. I'm really, really excited. So, you know, maybe a year ago or two years ago or longer, I, I, I might have said, yeah, I don't really want to teach that. I'll do it if I have to. I mean, we did it as a Wednesday Bible study way back many years ago, uh, but just wasn't one that I found myself too excited about to preach on Sunday. I'm really excited. I think this is going to be just a fabulous Fabulous study, not because um, of any, any, I don't know that I'll teach it fabulously, but it is a fabulous book. It is an amazing book of the Bible. So, now that we've gotten through that, that you guys want to hear it and I want to teach it and we're all there, I guess the next question that comes that often comes up is can the book of Revelation even be understood? And there have been a variety of answers to that question. Well, there's not a variety, there's really two answers to that question. No. <laughs> and you'd be amazed, there are a lot of people who say that no, it really cannot be understood and John Calvin wrote commentaries on every book of the Bible except the book of Revelation. He kind of knew a few things. I was reading where Charles Spurgeon has produced, I don't know, tens of thousands of sermons. 74 from the book of Revelation. It's a very, very small percent. There are people, and there were debates as the canon was being put together. So the question is, can the book of Revelation be understood? I'm going to say, yes, it can. And I say so for a number of reasons. Number one, it would be futile to bother having it if it could not be understand, so then, uh, understood. So why would God give that to us? The other reason, it, it tells us, I think, at least implicitly, in, in the third verse, it said, Blessed are those who read and hear and obey. Now the idea of obeying would tend to at least imply that we can understand what's in it. How can we obey what you don't understand? I mean, if I say, understand this, blah, 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 blah. And obey it. Right? You can't understand what it would just say. So, I think it can be understood simply because Jesus tells us to obey what's in it. And I'll unpack that a little bit more as we go along. So I think we, we can be certain that it can be understood. Now, does that mean that we are going to understand everything in it? Well, no, but we just got done with Genesis, and I'll be honest with you, I didn't understand everything that we said in the book of Genesis. There are still mysteries in the book of Genesis that I still have questions about. Prior to that, we studied the book of Matthew. Well, there's a good gospel. Do I understand everything in the book of Matthew? No, but do I avoid it? Absolutely not. 
If we believe that God's ways are higher than our ways, and God's thoughts are not our thoughts, and God's communicated His ways and His thoughts into His book called the Bible, is it unreasonable then for us to think that maybe some of those things may even be difficult or hidden from us? I don't think that's unreasonable. And I think that the book of Revelation is, is in that same category. We're going to get through this thing, and you're probably going to say, well, there's some areas I agree with Pastor John, some areas I disagree, and some areas I just don't know. Maybe as you study the Bible over the course of years, you will tend to, to gather these in, and you'll begin, to, you'll begin to understand them. But I think it can be understood. That doesn't mean we understand it exhaustively, because I don't think we understand God exhaustively. But here's just the basic under, here's the basic theme, I guess, of the book of Revelation, that God rules history and will bring it to its consummation in Christ. God is the ruler of history, and He will bring history to its consummation in His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, I think one of the problems with the book of Revelation is that we tend to look up at it as a puzzle book and that it needs, we need to know all of the pieces and we try to fit the pieces but the book of Revelation isn't a puzzle book but I think it is a picture book and so what we end up doing I think oftentimes is that we look at events that happen in life and then we try to fit them as pieces of the puzzle into the book of Revelation. Don't do that. Stop it. <laughs> For instance, I remember, I don't know, 20 years ago or so, everybody was all worked up about the uh, European Economic Union. Right? And I remember there were like seven um, countries involved or whatever. And everybody's going, yeah, because the beast is ten-headed and the European Economic Union, that's what it is. And I've heard there's three more coming into it and then that'll make ten and then one will drop away because remember the beast has ten heads and one wounded. And so, yeah, that's it. Stop it. Stop it. It's not what God is trying to tell us in the book of Revelation. And we can probably go through and just find all kinds of things uh, about people trying to put this puzzle together. It's not a puzzle that needs to be put together. It's a picture that's revealing something. And let's sit back and enjoy the pictures of what God is revealing to us and be amazed. And when it's all said and done, you will see God and Jesus Christ glorified in ways that you hopefully you've never seen before. Now, I've described it as a picture book, but there are definitely some unique challenges to the book of Revelation. And one of the big challenges is that it has a mixture of genres. And so let me just kind of describe that. If we had a comic strip and a series of love letters and a contract, all of them would be communicating something. But you would read a comic strip differently than you will read a love letter, and you will read a love letter differently than you would read a business contract, right? I mean, in a business contract, everything's pretty precise and words 
not only mean exactly what they say, but then you define what that word means. So this is to the party of the first part, and the party of the first part is, is described by this term, lessor, and a lessor is, and then you describe what a lessor is, and you define all the words in that definition, and then you just ad nauseum. If you deal with contracts, you know what I'm talking about. Very, very literal. And a love letter is, you know, your eyes are pools of azure, and your hair is silk of the finest, whatever, as you tell them, a romantic. <laughs> now, a comic strip can reveal truth, but it reveals it in a completely different way. Man, our problem is when we all get speaking well letters, too often times we're speaking comic strips. That's just off the record. You don't need to write that down. <laughs> but what I'm saying is these are different genres of writing, and they all communicate to us, but they do so in different ways. And the book of Revelation has a mixture of genres. None of it is comic strip, and maybe contract. Anyways. It has a mixture of genres. And so we need to, this is what kind of makes things a challenge for us, is we need to decipher and figure out which genre is being spoken of. And I'm going to unpack the genres um, in just a little bit, because we have a variety of different types of writing, um, and I'll unpack those. But one of the things we'll need to do as we go through it is understand that there are these different genres, and we need to understand that. And then you add to it that John likes to mix his metaphors all the time. I know normally that's bad English, and you don't do it. Paul does it all the time, too, so I guess it's okay uh, for biblical authors to mix their metaphors. We'll see something like John says, and behold, I saw, you know, they said, behold the lamb, and I turned and looked and saw, or behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, and behold, I saw a lamb. Lion and I see a lamb. So John likes to do that all the time. So he says, Behold, I see this, and I turn and I look and I see something else. And the something else is the same. John likes to mix his metaphors. And he'll do it all the time. John likes to describe, to mention something, and then much later describe it. So these are some of the, uh, the issues. So we have mixed genres. Here's the other thing we have, and I'm going to give you a personal example. We have ingrained presuppositions. I'm going to give you a personal example. And I hesitate to give you this personal example because it might like fireworks, but I figured this book, we're going to have some fireworks, we might as well get it started now, right? So here we go. This is something, it's a personal ingrained presupposition that I just came to a realization this week. Oh my, I have just presupposed on the text something that may not be there. I'm not saying it isn't there. I'm just saying it may not be there. And my presuppositions for the past 40 years have assumed it's there. Because of the way I've been taught. And it's so ingrained, I didn't even know it wasn't there. Alright. I'm going now. Probably many people, if not most people, maybe even all of the people in this room would hold to the idea that if you have an opinion on the millennium, 
millennium is a thousand year reign of Christ. And we probably most of us in here would hold to that it is a thousand years of Christ reigning with the saints on the earth. Many people in here would hold that view. I would consider myself what is sometimes called a historic premillennialist, um, which holds to that view. For me, though, it doesn't have to be a thousand years. I can give a pay a year or two. Anyways. So, remember I told you guys to read Revelation? And some of you did. I did too. And I've been reading it a lot. And this week, I realized that there's nowhere in the Bible that says there's going to be a thousand years right on earth. Nowhere. You're saying, oh no. Revelation 20. Revelation 20. That's what I tell you too. I tell you the same thing. Let's go to Revelation 20. I think we got it up on the screen here. And he threw him into the abyss and talked about Satan. And he threw Satan into the abyss and shed it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. And after these things, he will be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones and they that sat on them and judgment was given to them and they... And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and not received a mark on their forehead, on their head, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. That's where the, the idea comes from. It's the only verse really that talks about the millennium in the Bible. Show me where it says it's on earth. It doesn't. I've just always read that into there. In fact, I could make a case. Then I saw thrones. Then I saw, we are going to learn this phrase. Then I saw changes. That, that moves us to a new scene. John is not changing, not changing the subject, but he's altering things. And we're going to see this phrase. Then I saw all the way through it. Then I saw thrones. And in Revelation, thrones are always in heaven. And then I saw thrones, I think, refers back to the book of Daniel, which is, then I saw the Ancient of Days seated on his throne. Where's that at? It's in heaven. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that this, maybe once we get to this place, we end up, and it really is on earth for a thousand years. I'm not saying abandon that. I'm just saying I read that in for 40 years. And now I say, wait a second, maybe it's not. We have presupposition. Here's what I'm trying to tell you. We have presuppositions, and I want to read the book of Revelation the best we possibly can. I mean, we don't even know our presuppositions are so ingrained. I didn't. So, my point here in using this example is not to say that we'll not be a thousand year reign on earth of Christ and his people. I'm just saying, you know what? I presuppose something. I'm looking at it with fresh eyes. Maybe, maybe, I need to go back and look at this again. I hope we do that with all of Scripture. My goal is not to be novel or contrary. My goal is to open God's Word and read it with as few biases and presuppositions as I possibly can. I don't want to come in and create novel interpretations. I don't think that's a good idea. You've often heard that if you come up with a new interpretation of Scripture, it's probably heresy. So that's not my goal. But my goal is to read God's Word and to draw out from the text. I want to exegete, draw out from the text its meaning. Not put my presupposition into it. 
That's what I want to do. I, I know that's what you want to do. So we have this difficulty or these challenges. They are not insurmountable. We have mixed genres and we have our own biases and presuppositions and our own what they call eisegesis. We read our presuppositions into the text. So, now that we've safely navigated that set of fireworks and nobody threw rotten tomatoes at me or called me a heretic yet. Why do we need the book of Revelation? Is it, do we need the book of Revelation? I think we do. We need the book of Revelation because we've been lulled to sleep by the mundane, mundane. And we need to see God as He truly is. And I want you to understand that one of the things that Revelation is, is it is, you're going to hear me say this over and over again today and as we go through the book, it is a revealing of things as they really are. And we've been lulled to sleep by the mundane. I mean, we get up and we go to work and we take our kids here and we take them there and we have meetings and we do this and we go to church and we serve and we pass out bulletins and we do all of this stuff and we've just been kind of lulled asleep by the mundane and I hope that the book of Revelation wakes us up from the mundane so that we see Jesus as the exalted Lord, as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We need to know that our God reigns in heaven. All right, And that when we look around and we see terrorism and we see ungodly laws being passed and we see the slaughter of innocents and we see all of these things and we go, oh my goodness, this is horrible. I want you to understand that there is a God in heaven and a lamb who sits upon the throne high and lifted up and he is in control of all things and he will bring history to its ultimate end. I hope we see God exalted. And I think we get lulled into our... We read the business section and we read our conservative news blog sites and we do all of these things. And we rail against, you know, the liberals out there and the heretics. And yet God is exalted. And if Revelation does nothing else but to give you an exalted view of God and the Lamb who sits on the throne, we've done well, really well. I want you to know that God is worshipped and that He has a, the authority to judge all who, and will judge all who oppose Him. So we have a great need for the book of Revelation. So let me begin to unpack some of the genres of Revelation and show its meaningless, meaningfulness and then I'm going to get through the first three verses. And so the first thing we need to understand is that Revelation is a letter. That's one of the genres. It's a letter. It tells us in chapter 1, verse 11 and verse 19, uh, uh, John is told, write what you see and send it to these churches. Write what you see and send it. It's like, well, I like a letter, doesn't it? Revelation is a letter. In fancy religious speak, it's an epistle. It's, it's structured like a letter. Many letters in uh, the... In the time in which John wrote, began with a prologue. We'll see that today. And then there was a greeting. Now, if you've read the Bible much, especially Paul's letters, you know that letters have introductions. Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, to the church and such and such, grace and peace be to you, and on he goes. Right? 
Revelation starts pretty much the exact same way. John, you know, your brother in the tribulations to the seven churches. We also see, um, yeah, look at verse 4. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace and peace to him, grace and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus the faithful witness. So this is, this is a letter. Look how Revelation closes. It closes like a letter. If you've read Paul's letters or any other, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. There's actually a little longer conclusion. Grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. So the whole of Revelation is a letter. And I guess the point, I, uh, so it's structured like a letter. Like I said, it has a prologue, it has a greeting, it has a conclusion. And here's the thing I want you to understand. That all of Revelation is a letter. Sometimes, and I've done this, I tend to think chapter 2 and 3 are the latter part and everything else is something else. The whole book is a letter to the seven churches. Every bit of it. It's a letter. Not just verb chapters 2 and 3. Those are specifically letters to specific churches, but the whole thing is a letter. And there are recipients to the letter. Because letters have recipients. Who are the recipients of the letter? Seven churches in Asia. And we'll go through those. And it says to these seven churches, but more specifically, not just to seven churches, but to bond servants of Jesus Christ who reside in these churches. Bond servants. This should encourage us because... The book of Revelation, the letter of Revelation, if you will, is not written to prophecy know-it-alls. It is not written to PhDs in some ivory tower somewhere. It is not even written to angels or angelic beings. It is written to the bondservants of Jesus Christ. So we should understand that this letter was written to the bondservants of Jesus Christ, specifically in these seven churches. And as we get to it, we'll see why there are seven churches. So it was written to them. Just like the book of Colossians was written to the church of Colossae, and the book of Corinthians was written to the church of Corinth, and the book of Ephesians was written to the church at Ephesus. It was written to them. The book of Ephesus was not written to you, by the way. That doesn't mean it has no meaning for you, but we understand what was going on in the church of Colossae. First, what's going on there, and then we understand what's going on in the church of Colossae, and we draw out the meaning, and we say, and then we make application to ourselves. But it was written to a very specific group of people during a very specific time frame where there were very specific issues being dealt with. Revelation is the same way. It's written to a very specific group of people who are enduring very specific things, and then from that we draw out application, and we say, ah... This is how it applies to us. This is a genre. An epistle is a genre. So, some of the things that these churches are going through is that they are suffering tribulation. Paul says, I'm a, I'm a brother in the tribulation with you. 
And they're suffering this tribulation, this affliction from a seemingly all-powerful Roman state. Basically, at the time that uh, John wrote this, um, Domitian was the emperor. And... Um, Domitian was a madman. It seems like every time we talk about the Roman emperor, they're all madmen. Okay, so it's just... Whenever we say Roman emperor, at least during the biblical time, they're all nut jobs. Right. And Domitian was probably one of the nuttier of the nut jobs. Right. Now, emperor worship wasn't all that unique amongst uh, Roman emperors, but Domitian was kind of raised to its... Uh, to, to new heights. Basically, when a Roman emperor died and he was deified and he was worshipped as a god, Domitian said, why wait till I'm dead? Why not worship me now? I'm alive. So he just said, okay, everybody's going to worship me. And even though I'm alive, you know, just keep worshiping me. I'm God. And so, you had to say, Caesar is Lord. Well, that flies in the face of Christians, doesn't it? What do Christians say? Jesus is Lord. So we can't say Caesar is Lord because that would be wrong. Now most Romans had no problem with that. They said, oh, we've got a bunch of gods and, you know, no big deal. We'll just add Domitian to it. Who cares? Domitian is God. Caesar is God. Whatever. And that was no big deal. But it was a big deal to Christians. And they would not say that Caesar is Lord. They would say Jesus is Lord. To add to this, basically, if you would go into one of your trade unions or into a shop or you wanted to, you, you would, You'd offer a pinch of incense, and you'd say, Caesar is Lord. As an act of worship or an act of acknowledgement. And most Romans had no problem with that. Because then we got a billion gods, and who cares? We're going to another one, and all that. Offer this pinch of incense. And offer it up to tradition as Lord. Well, the Christian says, no. Well, guess what? Now you can't buy yourself. Because you will not acknowledge and offer up this sacrifice, this offering to commission as Lord. So guess what? You can't start a business. In fact, I read, and I wish I could have found them, um, but there are actually letters of authenticity saying that you have sought, that you have confessed before civil authority that Caesar is Lord. And you carry this paper, kind of like a passport around with you, and if anybody ever asks you, it's like, well, you know, we're which you could show that, but Christians didn't have one. Because they would not recognize that Caesar is Lord. They would say, no, Jesus is Lord. Now, Jews were pretty much exempt from this. So the Jews could kind of get around a lot of this. They had staked their claim, and basically Rome didn't want to mess with the Jews, because they just wouldn't be a big mess, so let's just leave them alone. Let them do their little Jewish thing, whatever. We don't care about them. But Christians were not afforded that. They were seen as a sect, a cult, um, a weird group um, came off the Jewish religion, but not Jewish at all. So we can, plus they're small, we can beat them up and we can kill them and nobody really cares. So this is what's going on. We have a group of churches um, who are dealing with these afflictions uh, during the time of Domitian. And so the book of Revelation is given to encourage Christians. 
And though it was written to seven specific churches to encourage them, it is also written to us to be an encouragement. Just like Colossians was written to Colossae for reason, for specific reasons, but it also blesses us today. And Ephesians is written to the church at Ephesus and to the Ephesian believers, but it is a blessing to us. And so the book of Revelation was written to people, the bond servants, in these seven churches. And yet it serves as an encouragement to us because in it we will see, as I said, Jesus Christ high and lifted up. We're going to begin to see the book of Revelation was written so that these persecuted believers could see things the way they really are. Because the way things really the way things appeared to be was not the way things really are. And they needed to see things the way things really are. I think in our world we need to see things the way they really are. Because I think we miss the glorious Lamb of God too often. It's also warned to, it's written to warn, and many of the epistles were written to warn people. This is also a warning, because the temptation to follow the beast is going to be very powerful. After all, if you don't, you'll die. Well, that's a pretty good motivator. Worship and live. Don't worship and die. That's a pretty powerful motivator. Or, worship and eat. Don't worship and don't eat. All right, I'll get hungry. I want to eat. So these things are, are really, really powerful. And so, but to warn them that to worship the beast is to reject the lamb. And to reject the lamb is to bring eternal death. See, the lamb is the true ruler. And that John wants his readers to know that the lamb is the true ruler. The Roman state is not. The Lamb is the ruler of all things. And so, worship the Lamb. Now, if you worship the Lamb, this may mean you die. But John, again, is going to show things the way they really are. That even if you die under the Roman state, the way things really are is that you live forever with the Lamb. And the Lamb, by associating yourself with the Lamb, you will be victorious. It appears the way things look is that you are defeated. But the way things really are is that you're victorious. Why? Because the Lamb is victorious. And so, who will you align yourself with? Are you going to align yourself with the beast? It appears you have victory because you're going to eat and live and prosper and do well and all this stuff. But you will experience the judgment of the Lamb. Or you can worship the Lamb. And it appears that you're going to be weak and, and unable to function. But the reality is, you're the victor. So John wants them to see things the way they really are. So uh, this letter, just by way of application, informs us that God reigns. And I think this is important as we begin to enter into a period of American history that I think is unheard of. And basically, as the closets have been emptied by every perversion known to mankind and is now being acceptable and Christians are going to be forced into those empty closets. I know I have a pessimistic view of things sometimes. But the church is, going, is quickly becoming silenced and denigrated and hated because we're quote haters. 
we are going to have to have a firm vision of who we will follow. And who wins? Who is the victor? And who will we follow? Will we follow the state? Or will we follow the Lamb who sits on the throne? I want you to have a high and exalted view of the Lamb who sits upon the throne. Because then no matter what the state does, or what anybody does, or what anybody calls you, you will say, we are the victors. It may not appear that way, but again, we want to see things as they really are, not as they appear to be. So this is a great book for us. Also, Revelation is prophecy. We know this is another genre, so we know that Revelation is prophecy because it tells us, verse 3, whoever hears the words of the prophecy. Prophecy, okay? Now, prophecy serves a number of different purposes in Scripture, and one of the purposes of prophecy is, of course, to provide a glimpse in what's going to happen. Everybody wants to know what's going to happen. Prophecy not only... um, portrays what will happen in times to come. But the prophets also called people to return and to persevere in godly obedience in their current situations. For instance, Isaiah. When he uh, was prophesying to one of the the southern kingdom, the kings of the southern kingdom, who was all afraid because there was a the northern kingdom up above him in Syria was really strong. And he was really concerned what to do and didn't know what to do. And he was going to go get help from, from one of the major powers. And Isaiah said, listen, don't worry about those two northern kingdoms who are going to try to attack you. You don't need to worry about them. You need to trust in the Lord now. Don't go running off to the, to the empire to try to get military help. You need to, right now, trust in the Lord. That's what you need to do. I want you to return to the Lord in your present circumstances, and I want you to persevere despite those two more powerful nations who are threatening war against you. I want you to hold fast in the things of God. That's what Isaiah did. Jeremiah did the same thing. He talked about things that were going to happen in the future, but he also said, you need to serve God right now in these present circumstances. And he would call people back to a place where God is exalted, where God is followed, and where God is honored. And Revelation does the same thing. It tells us about things that are future, but it also calls us to a place to serve God in our current and present situation. And it's calling the readers of this letter. There are going to be some things that are going to happen for the time is short. Revelation tells us, for the time is short. The time is at hand. But also, this is what you need to hold fast in these days. And I want you to return to the Lord. So it is a it is a prophecy. And it tells us that God is going to, to bring about judgment on all those who oppose him. This is one of the dark parts of the book of Revelation. It says that God is going to judge all who oppose him in just unbelievable destruction. So how will the knowledge of God's imminent judgment affect you today? Imagine it's September 10th, 2001, in the afternoon, and you get word that on the next day, there are going to be numerous plane flights. People are going to die. 
Would that change how you live September 10th? Would it affect the way you live the rest of that day? Or would you just go about your day as a well? What if you knew somebody who's going to be on one of those planes or one of those buildings? Would it affect you the way you would have lived out the rest of September 10th? I think it would have. You would have gotten on the phone. Even if you didn't know somebody, you might have called the FBI and said, man, I, I, I know for a fact there's going to be a terrorist attack on them, and these are the flight numbers, and they may have scoffed you to scorn. And you would have been vindicated the next day. Folks, Revelation tells us there is judgment, and we need to begin to ask ourselves how will God respond back to the imminent judgment of the Lamb of God? Does it change the way we think? Does it change the way we live? It ought to. Just like if you knew the events of September 11th on September 10th, it would have changed the way you live. Folks, the words of Revelation are certain and true. Revelation is also an apocalypse. Now, an apocalypse just simply means, and we know that because it tells us the revelation of Jesus Christ, which is just the word apocalyptic, or apocalypso. Anyways, apocalyptic was a, a very common form of writing back in the days when John uh, wrote. We don't have it anymore, so it's pretty foreign to us, but there are a lot of apocalypses, a lot of apocalypses out there. Um, there are many Jewish apocalypses, many Christian apocalypses. Um, one guy who has uh, done a lot of work in the book of Revelation, who I admire quite a bit, said the first thing I would do if I was going to teach a class in Revelation is I'd have them read 10 or 11 uh, Jewish and Christian apocalypses before they come to the book of Revelation. If they did that, the book of Revelation would make perfect sense to them. Because these grotesque images that we see in the book of Revelation and these, these uh, images and these scenes and all these things seem to afford to us are really pretty common. In, in various apocalyptic literatures. And in the Bible, there are other apocalypses, or partial apocalypses. In Daniel, we see apocalyptic literature. In Zechariah, we see apocalyptic literature. So we see this type of literature scattered throughout Scripture, but the Revelation is probably the single book that is kind of dedicated to it. And it's fairly common, but it simply means to unveil, to reveal. You guys see the movie The Matrix? Yeah, so very early on, so Neo, the computer hacker, if you don't know the story, basically he's given a choice. Take the red pill or the blue pill, right? The red pill, if you take the red pill, you can go on living, and you'll wake up in your bed tomorrow, you'll go on living a perfectly happy, content life. Just go about it. You take the blue pill, you're going to see things the way they really are. And Morpheus says, I'll show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. I don't even know if they got the, the theme or the plot of the Matrix from the book of Revelation, but they could have. Because you can read the book and just go on living our lives, or we can take the blue pill and open up the book of Revelation and we'll see things the way they really are and we'll see how deep the rabbit hole goes. So, we're taking the blue pill today. Because Revelation unveils it reveals things. And John, John's audiences are led to expect that the book is going to reveal heavenly mysteries. It's going to give us an accurate view of things. That is, that when believers die in the Lord for their faith, they're not the victims, but they are the victors. They're going to learn that, despite popular opinion, your best life is not now. 
There we're going to learn and see the, the beauty of the exalted Lord that He is worth living and dying for. We are going to see the, the, the very throne room of heaven. Wow. John's going to give us a glimpse of that. That's the way things really are. We're going to see judgment in the way it really is. So it is an apocalypse. It is an unveiling. It is a pulling back of the curtain. It is a taking the blue pill. And you'll see things how they really are. That's where we're at. Well, let's look at verses 1 through 3. And um, we'll cover these briefly and then we'll get into it in detail next week. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are in it, for the time is near. Now, Revelation 1 through 3 is pretty much prologue, but it gives us pretty much the general summary of the whole book. It tells us its origin, it tells us its purposes, tells us its nature, it tells us the subject. And so it begins with the revelation or the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And there's been a whole lot of ink spilled on whether or not this is objective or it is subjective. In other words, is Jesus the source of the revelation, the revelation who is source is in Jesus Christ, or is Jesus the subject of the revelation? Is Jesus is this revelation about Jesus Christ? And I'm going to give you a really good politically correct answer and say both. I'm going to get right on that fence and straddle it perfectly. It is both, I think. I think the source is Jesus Christ, and I think that the subject of the book is Jesus Christ. There are other big subjects. We're going to see God. Uh, and we're going to see worship. Worship is a huge element of the book of Revelation. So Jesus is both object and he's both the source and the object of the book of Revelation. In this, we are going to see the divine nature of Jesus revealed. We're going to see Jesus as he truly is. You should notice briefly the chain of command that this book comes. It comes from God to Jesus to an angel to John to the servants. This is not unusual for apocalyptic literature. It's the way apocalyptic literature often work. Oftentimes, the earthly person, the person writing it, would be given, would be provided a heavenly guide, an angelic guide who would take them into heaven and take them back to the earth and show them all these things. Read Zechariah. We'll see the exact same thing. There's a heavenly guide. I mean, takes Zechariah all over the place and shows him things and says, what, what are these things? And Zechariah says, I don't know. You know. John does the exact same thing. And he just says, look at this. What is that? I don't know. You know. And then the angel interprets it for him. This is very, very calm. Pretty much, probably... Probably the one common theme in all of apocalyptic literature is this theme. So this is very common. And then, so the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place, and he sent it communicated by his angel to his bondservant John. Now I need to stop for a while and unpack this word communicated because it is crucial to how we understand or how I am going to present the book of Revelation to you. 
There's a lot of discussion. Basically, whatever bias or presupposition you bring into the book of Revelation is going to have a big impact on how you understand the events of Revelation. So I'm just going to let you know, here's my bias and my presupposition. But it's not just out of the blue. I have a reason, and I think a biblical reason, for this particular presupposition. I guess it's not really a presupposition. It is a supposition that I think is true, and it's based on biblical evidence. And it comes from this little word communicated, and it's key. There is all sorts of technical grammar and language behind this, and I'm not going to bore you with it. Um, but I will give you this little language tidbit. This word communicated comes from a, from, is a cognate of the word semion. The Greek word semion, and... You don't need to know that except to know that John loves this word. It's all over his gospel. Everywhere. It's he loves this word. Now, in the gospel of John, it's not, it's not, it's, it's not translated, communicated, because it's cognate of that. It's, it's translated signs. Now, Jesus in the book of John, you should know that Jesus never did one single miracle in the book of John. And I have said that many, many times. There's not one miracle in the book of John. You say, well, he raised, he raised Lazarus from the dead. I can't call that a miracle. How about opening the eyes of the blind man? That's kind of a miracle. No, it's not. It's a sign. That's what John calls it. He calls it a sign. And signs point to something else. Signs are a signal or a signifying point of something else. So when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead and then comes on and gives a sermon, I'm the resurrection and the life. It's like, oh, that's a great illustration of this truth, of this sermon. Or when John opens the eyes of a man born blind and then says, I'm the light of the world. Do you see how that's a sign of something else? It's signifying something else. And John says, and this word communicated can be, there are a number of meanings to it. And one of its meanings, and I think without boring you with the syntactical structure of the book of Daniel chapter 7, and he is saying that John is communicating by signals, or John communicates by signs. So, the question is, or whatever it means, to indicate clearly, to indicate true signs. And so the question then that we have to address is how do we interpret the book of Revelation? The prominent way today to understand the book of Revelation is to take it literally unless it's clearly symbolic. Unless it's a lot of symbolic stuff. I mean, unless I don't think any of us believe that we're going to see a ten-headed beast with seven crowns on its head and one of those... I don't think we're going to actually say, well, I wonder when we're going to see this beast rise up out of the sea. Right? And we're, not going to, we're not expecting to see some sort of land beast. Maybe you are. I'm not. I think that's symbolic. Right. Just my opinion. I'll give you another... I don't believe that we're going to see two guys who breathe fire out of their mouths. I think it's symbolic. I'll give you another thing. I don't believe that the new heaven and the new earth is a cube. You say, but I see it in the book of Revelation. I'm down as a cube. Let me give you a little tip that you can research on your own. There's another cube in the Bible. It's in the Old Testament. Find that cube, and you're going to see that John's not describing the architecture of New Jerusalem. 
He's doing something far more glorious, something far more spectacular, something that will cause you to fall on your face and worship God. He's not giving you an architectural plan. Don't interpret it as an architectural plan. You're wrong. It has to do with the glory of God. And if you substitute the architectural structure of woman, heaven, and earth, nice, but man, God is down here. You understand when we get there, John is talking about you will fall on your face and give glory to the God of gods and the King of kings. And that's what your revelation is supposed to do. Not to give you an architectural outline. So I've hammered that point. So I understand. That's one way to understand it. And, and it's always going to be a, a struggle for us to figure out what's symbolic and what's literal. My view, the way I want to take you through this book, because of the exegetical study of chapter 1, verse 1, is that we will interpret it symbolically unless it's clearly literal. Uh, I think there are some churches, there are some literal churches. And I think they're really called Thyatira, Thyatira and, and Philadelphia. I think those are really their names and things like that. But I don't think that we're going to see a literal beast rise up out of the sea with seven heads. Do you ever wonder why um, the new heaven and the new earth don't have a sea? You take that literally or symbolically. It's symbolic. Unless you don't want to surf in the new heaven and the new earth. I want to learn to surf. But symbolic. Because where does chaos come from? Where does the beast come from? He comes from the sea. There's no more abode for death. There's no more abode for deception. There's no more abode for chaos. There's no more abode for evil. It's gone. All there is is the lamb. And the slain in between. I don't know. That just makes way, but that's just more meaningful to me. That's just me. We want to take things symbolically unless we understand it clearly to be literal. And I know that's maybe a flip-flop for some, but that's the way I'm going to take you through this book. Now, the hard part is always which one, which is which. And sometimes we're going to really struggle on that. All right? And we'll have some fireworks there. Sometimes we'll really struggle there. Then finally, we see in the book of Revelation, in this first thing, Blessed is, the, is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are in it. First of all, we should note that this is a blessing. It's a beatitude. The blessing. We're going to see this six more times in the book of Revelation for the total of seven blessings. Seven is a very significant number in the book of Revelation. It has the idea of completion or fulfillment or totality. And so when you read the book of Revelation, you read the seven blessings, when you read the book, it's the totality of blessing. You should get done with it and be totally blessed. Because there's seven blessings. That's not a mistake. John didn't say, oh man, look, it turned out seven. That was good. That could be meaningful sometime. Oh, he meant seven blessings. The blessed is the one who reads. So this was a letter. And so somebody would take it around to the seven churches and they would get up and read it. This was the sermon that day. And blessed is the one who hears it. That's the congregation. But notice the other blessing, and who obeys. Obedience is the proper response to the book of Revelation. John's witness to this unveiling is not, to, to, is not intended to foster, foster curiosity about futuristic minutiae. 
I know come to the book of Revelation, we want to know where we're at in prophetic history. Where are we at in God's plan? And did that terrorist attack, uh, you know, last week, that place us somewhere in Revelation's futuristic history? That's not what it's about, I don't think. Now, there may be some things we can discover about where we're at in salvation history, but it was so that you would be blessed and that you would obey the words of Jesus Christ. When you hear the words of God, you are called to obey them. There is an ethical response. It is to show how God wants us to live in light of redemptive history. Now, we may learn various things about futuristic events as we go through this, because there are definitely some futuristic things here. But I think too often times we try to think, okay, well, what's 666? Who's the Antichrist? Who are the 144,000? And I think we go about that wrong. I think we need to step back and say, what is the whole book about? And then as we go through, we'll see what some of these things are. We'll see how God is bringing about His glorious plan of redemption. Remember, it started in Genesis. And so the prophecy of verse 3, I don't think it's so much about predictive revelation, but it's divine disclosure that demands an ethical response. That is, you hear it and you do it. When you hear the words of this prophecy, you don't say, oh, okay, now I've got to figure out all of the little details of futuristic events. No, I need to look at what God is doing and obey Him. And He gives us a reason. The time is near. Now, of course, that opens up all sorts of ideas, and I'm not going to discuss those this morning. We can discuss those Wednesday night. But... If we claim to have benefited, they say the time is near. This is why you need to heed the book, because the time is near. And to claim to have benefited from Christ's past redemptive work demands um, an acknowledgement that we need to submit to him as Lord, as Lord in the present and in the future. So if Christ has redeemed us in the past, it is incumbent upon him to obey him, not only in the present, but in the future. So I'm going to close with this. One of the things that Revelation does for us is shows us that we are involved in a, in a spiritual war. We will follow the beast or we will follow the lamb. And so I guess today I'm going to say, choose this day whom you will serve. Will you follow the lamb or will you follow the beast? We are going to observe many counterfeits in this book. We're going to see the beast in, in the image of a dragon. Where else do we get image of language? Back in Genesis, man was created in the image of God. The beast is created in the image of the dragon. You and I are created in the image of God. It's counterfeit. We see, we're going to see a counterfeit trinity. We're going to see a counterfeit resurrection. We're going to see how the counterfeit beast receives counterfeit worship. We're going to see that the counterfeit beast seals his followers, just as God seals his people. We're going to see... Uh, as we get further on, we're going to see a prostitute and a pure bride. The prostitute is the counterfeit of the pure bride. The counterfeit's all over the place. There is what is real, and John wants to see what is real, so that when we encounter the counterfeit, we say, no, that's not real. The beast isn't who I follow. I follow the man. Joining myself to the, the prostitute city, no. I'm going to join myself to the pure, spotless bride of Christ. That's where I'm going. I don't believe in that false resurrection because I have a true resurrection in the, in the Lamb who looks as though he is slain but he's reigning on the throne. And so, Satan is going to attack us through deceit and through doctrinal confusion. That's what he does. 
There's a spiritual war. And we need to choose whom we will serve. For also there is a danger and a hope. See, the counterfeit is close enough to us that it could deceive us. And I think John wants his readers to know that there is a counterfeit. And it is it's a really, really, really good counterfeit. And it will lead many people astray. It's close enough to affect us. But, on the other side, John gives us hope that God, who is the originator, wins. And you're going to be on one side. You're going to be on the side that wins, that is the side of the Lamb who is slain. Or you're going to be on the side of the beast who is thrown into hell forever and ever. That's where Revelation is going to take us. So choose this day whom you will serve. Let's stand and let's go.